0: So good morning, HBC. I always feel like a rock star when I say something like that. Um, it's, a be- it's, it's a real blessing for Nancy and I to be here this weekend. Uh, thank you for your warm welcome since we arrived last morning. We had so much food and uh, fellowship time with uh, a few of, the, uh, of you. So it has been a, a real blessing. So thank you for, the inv- for inviting us here. and. Um, I'd like to invite you to look with me this morning at Paul's last exhortation to the Philippians. Um, And we can summarize his last exhortation in this way. Beloved, stand firm in the faith as you rejoice in the Lord always. So we find this last exhortation in Philippians 4. We're going to look at. Verse 1 to 4. So, beloved, stand firm in the faith as you rejoice in the Lord always. But before we, we read and examine this passage, there is something particularly striking in the letter of, of Paul to the Philippians. And it is Paul's affection for the Philippians. And we can see this at the beginning of his letter when he says, In chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, I hold you in my heart. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loves the Philippians with the same tenderness as Jesus Christ. The expression is strong, isn't it? He is saying, I love you like Jesus loves you. It's not just an intellectual love like We are brothers and sisters in Jesus, so we have to love one one another. No, it is a love that comes from his innermost being, a love that is expressed by a real preoccupation about the the other person. And I'd like to do an exercise with you uh, this morning. I will invite you to think about a person with whom you have a relationship like that of Paul with the Philippians. A person who has a positive influence in your life, a person you admire, whom you love, who is precious to you, a person who you know loves you and wants your uh, your well-being. It could be a friend, uh, a spouse, a parent, a real brother or sister, or a brother or sister in the church. And now to compare with Paul's situations, um, imagine that this person is in a, in a precarious situation. Because Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, he's actually in prison. So imagine that that person that, you, um, that has a positive influence in your life, maybe is uh, sick, uh, maybe is bedridden. Um, but it's certainly not uh, a normal context for the relationship. And, you don't know if he will make it, it and it is, a, and in this difficult situation the person communicates something and you know that it might be his last word to you, his last wishes. Imagine that the words that Paul wrote to the Philippians in the verses we will read now are the, are the words this person that you admire. Is writing to you. So I'm going to read verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my crown and joy, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat sintiche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my follower worker, fellow work workers, whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And for me, when I think of a person that I admire, I think of my grandfather, whom I admire because he gave his life to announce the gospel in a hostile environment, in a time when one was put in jail in Quebec for announcing the gospel. And he says at the end of his race, stand firm, Stefan. It was worth it. I also think of, uh, of my father, whom who I admire because he was a full-time pastor for more than 30 years now. And despite of the ups and downs of pastoral ministry, he says, Stand firm, Stefan. It is worth it. But why is there this exhortation to stand firm? If I tell you, whom you are comfortably seated here uh, listening to my sermon, stand firm, hang on, resist, it doesn't make much sense because you're, you're not under any pressure. Well, unless it is pressure to fall asleep, that's, that's, that's some, something else. Stand firm. This is not an expression that we use too much today. But we can use other expressions that are synonyms, and they change according to the context. Um, and let, let me give you an example. I have had the chance um, to cut trees a few times with my father. Um, And I don't know why we always underestimate how tall a tree is and how dangerous it is also. Uh, And I remember uh, a few times when it was in a context where the tree must not fall on the house or on the neighbor's house. And I don't know why. It's probably an unwritten law. Um, But my father is always the one who cuts the tree. And I'm always the one who pulls the tree to make sure it, Falls in the right place, or push the tree in the right direction, and uh, and every time we cut a we cut a, we cut a tree, there is this moment where my dad is cutting my dad is cutting the tree with the the, the chainsaw, and uh, and there there's this moment where we're wondering will it fall in the right direction? So there's always that moment where we're waiting for to see where the tree is going to going to go. And at a certain point my dad says pull or push and that, st- that means stand firm. It's not going in the right direction. And I find it funny because sometimes he only says whoa and that also means stand firm. So sometimes whoa just that means stand firm. And in other contexts, we might say hang in there or simply put a hand on a shoulder or give a hug, and it it will mean stand firm. And what I want to underline here is that the expression stand firm necessarily implies two things. The The first thing is that there is a pressure being applied on you. And the second is that you need to apply a contrary pressure to stand firm. You want to go that way, but there's something that is pushing you on the other way and paul will say in chapter 1 verse 27 so that i may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in other words you want to push you want to put your trust in the, the gospel in the lord but there is pressure for you to put your faith on something else or someone else. And Paul in his letter uses expression like striving or fighting for the faith, enemy of Christ in the midst of a perverse and corrupt generation, earning the reward, running toward the goal. And all these expressions express the idea that a a comfortable Christian life without a struggle, an effort, a trial, without suffering just doesn't exist. Even if you're a, you've been a Christian for only two weeks, you know that the, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. You know that a Christian walk is not just a long, smooth ride. There is a price to pay to stand firm, because we absolutely must apply a contrary force in order to hold fast. And my grandfather, planted a church in the Montreal region a long time ago. And a few years later, uh, the, uh, the, the church had grown, a few new families joined the church, and, but the church was, was still fragile. And one summer, my grandfather decided to take a few young people to camp. And seeing as there were no camp in Quebec at that time, uh, he took them to a camp in Northern Ontario. And that year, um, the water level had risen on the river, and the, the original beach had disappeared. So they decided to look for another place, and to, to do so, they formed a human chain to walk down the river until they, they would find, found some sand, feel some sand. But at a certain point, uh, they arrived near a little island, and they underestimated the strength of the water flow and the young people began to fall. And instead of holding hands, they tried to reach for the side, and some began to drown. And at the end of the general panic that followed, uh, four young men had drowned. And two of them were 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 from Quebec. Two of them have traveled with my grandfather. And he had to call to inform the families. And some of people who were n- not able to get through the, the suffering left this little fragile church. And my grandfather suffered from nightmares for years after. And he was never able to swim with other people, never again. My dad, at a certain point in his ministry, went through a hard time where any decision he made was criticized. He experienced solitude, criticism from every side until he lost his health and needed to pull out of ministry for a time. That is the price that they had to pay. As for me, I still don't know completely what it, what it will cost me. And is everyone called to live tragedy that leaves consequences like my grandfather did? No. Is everyone called to live through solitude and bad health for the sake of the gospel? No. Is everyone called to be a pastor like my grandfather was, like my father was, and like I am today? No, that is my story, my price to pay. And Paul didn't pay the same price as the Philippians. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. He was ready to pay the ultimate price, giving his life, and that is exactly what will happen. The Philippians paid a different kind of price. The main reason for all the the letter of Paul to the Philippians is to thank them for their financial support. That's another way to pay the price. And the point is that we all are called to lose, to sacrifice something for the gospel. Now the question is, how do I know if if I'm standing firm? Or in other words, how do I measure my success at standing firm in the Lord? And we often define success in terms of the things we do. I am a Christian who stands firm in the Lord because I read the Bible and pray every day. I go to church every Sunday. I do Bible studies. I am involved in the church ministries. Uh, I go on a mission trip. I participate in a small group. I take time to listen to my neighbors and to sh- share God's story. And there, these are all good things. But can we really measure the success of our Christian walk by the thing we do? The reality is that we can be doing all those things and still not be standing firm in the Lord. And I would like to propose that a better way to measure our success is by the quality of our relationships. Everything we do should contribute to helping us to grow in our love for God and for one another. Everything we do should contribute to helping us love God and one another. Otherwise, it is useless. Reading my Bible and praying, are ways to create space to grow in my love for God. Participating in meeting at church and in small group or listening to our neighbor's story are ways to create space to grow in our love for others. Jesus sum up the law, we see that in Matthew 22, everything we do like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he also say in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So in short, the things we do are only tools to create space for God to work in our life and help us grow in our relationships. We measure our success and at standing firm by our growing love for God, for Christians, and for non-Christians. And we know that we are standing firm in the Lord when, no matter the circumstances, our love for God and for others is growing. And that is exactly where Paul is going in, his le- in this letter. The background for writing this letter to the Philippians is that there is conflict in the church. And after encouraging the church in a ger- general matter to live in harmony, he addresses the problem directly. And he says, I entreat Evodia and I entreat Tiche, to agree in the Lord. So the problem is that there is an unresolved conflict between two influential people in the church. Everyone knows about it, and this conflict has been there for a long time. It is harming the unity of the church and and its testimony. Conflicts in the church are inevitable. Conflicts in the church are inevitable because the church is a community of people who are living in a relationship one with the other. And when we say relationships, we say inevitably conflict. So conflicts are inevitable, but what is avoidable is unresolved conflict, conflicts that keep us from walking uh, from walking together, conflicts that divide us. And in chapter three, verse uh, fifteen and sixteen, Paul says, "If in anything you th- you think otherwise." God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what He has we have attained. And the point is that we will never be on the same opinion about everything. For example, moving toward a new church plan in my context necessarily bring, brings changes, and there are many ways an opinion about how to do things. So There's a lot of conflicts. And I should like to say this. Don't waste your conflicts. Your conflicts are always a way to stand firm in the Lord by growing in love for the others. To resolve a conflict is to create space to grow in my love for others and for God we measure our success at standing firm in the Lord by our growing love for one another. Now the last question is, how do we find the strength to stand firm? We often encourage people to stand firm and to love God and others, and they often say, yes, I want that, and I try, but I'm just not able to do it. So Paul, after exhorting the church to stand firm and to persevere in their love for one another, continues. And he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. When we read this passage, we we often separate this exhortation from what comes before it. But Paul is not changing changing the the subject here. He is continuing by giving them the means by which they can stand firm and persevere in their love. Rejoicing is a theme that we find a lot in the letter to the Philippians, and it is always linked with the gospel, linked to what Christ has accomplished for us. When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, he is saying Remember that the source of your joy depends on what the Lord has done and is now doing and will be doing. Your joy does not depend on whether you are right and the other person is wrong. You can stand firm and grow in your love for others who are not always lovable by rejoicing in the fact that Jesus didn't give his life by grace only for you, but also for the other person. The strength to stand firm comes when we believe that the source of our joy is Jesus. What he has done for us, what he is doing for us, and what he will be doing when he returns. And I would like to use a personal example to illustrate how we can intellectually believe in theory But in practice, we don't really believe. You know, one cannot go into a project to plant a church without having a dream of seeing the kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. And I dream of seeing a church more united, a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit and whose fruit is evident in the life of each person in the church. I dream of seeing the Spirit of the Lord save thousands of people every year where I am on the South Shore of Montreal through the testimony of the church. Lord, I want your kingdom to come on earth. Is it wrong to want these things? No. Is it wrong to dream of these things happening now? No. Is this prayer according to God's will? Yes. Well, then, is it normal that when I don't see these, thing ha- these things happening around me, I get frustrated. I judge people and I get discouraged. No, I should experience the fruit of the Spirit. I should experience peace. I should experience joy and patience. But that is exactly what happened to me not so long ago. And those who are close to me know that I wrestle with these thoughts. Lord, I have been doing the right thing for three years now in Belay. Three years ago, we came back to that region. And we began intentionally developing relationships with our neighbors and different people in the city in order to live out the gospel. We love them even if their lives are complicated. We don't judge them even when they make bad choices. We invest time and energy and money for them without expecting anything in return. We do this with joy because... We are on mission for God who has already given everything for us. We announce the good news of salvation in Jesus. But Lord, where is the fruit of all our efforts? And you know, God is faithful. And he met, he met me. He made me understand through my meditation of, of Scripture, through prayer and the help of brothers and sisters who spoke to my needs, that when I have these feelings of judgment and discouragement, when I ask God, where is the fruit of all my efforts? I am really saying two things. The first thing is, Lord, I am faithful. I do the right things. Why aren't you not faithful? I I can't change hearts. I can just love people and be an example, and I do my part. So why are, not, are you not doing your part? That is the first thing that I'm saying. And as, and as if that isn't bad enough, I also say, Lord, because I do the right things, I deserve to see results. I deserve to see that God is faithful to me. But one morning, as I was, pray, as I was praying, Jesus spoke to, my, to me by His Spirit, and He told me, Stefan, where were you when I was on the cross? Where were you when I was faithful unto death for you? Where were you when I bore all your sins at the, on the cross and I became unfaithful? in your place so that God could consider you faithful today. And I began to cry because the Holy Spirit had reminded me of two things. God does not need to do more to show me his faithfulness. He already did did it all at the cross. And secondly, I don't deserve his faithfulness. But by his grace, it was accorded to me anyway. What a liberation. What a relief to remember that I am not slave to results. That my joy doesn't depend on result, but on the one who obtained result for me. And you see. Even if we believe intellectually that Jesus is the good news and the subject of our joy, we often do not really believe. And we look for our joy elsewhere than in him. This is when we become frustrated, disappointed, and discouraged, and we judge one another. So that is my story. But what is your story? In what circumstances in your life do you live frustration, discouragement, judgment, anger, and fear? In what circumstances do you doubt God's faithfulness, power, greatness, grace, goodness, and love? And I invite you to create a space for the Spirit of God to remind you of the beauty and the greatness of what Christ has done for you. What he is doing for you now, and what he will do for you when he comes back. Beloved, stand firm in a faith as you rejoice in the Lord always. May God bless you abundantly. I will finish in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you because you are faithful even when I'm not. Thank you f- for your gentle love. Thank you because you correct us with so much gentleness and you come to meet our deepest needs. Thank you because you we are not slave to anything. We're not slave to results or anything else. Thank you because we can rejoice in you always. And that's what we want to do. Amen.